As soon as Mark gets all those handed out, we'll, uh, we'll have a prayer together. Start our time. Last week, last week Robin, or, uh, Megan said to me, man, you went through a lot of scriptures in class. And we're going to do some of that today too. Look at some passages from the Bible. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we thank you so much for the privilege we have of growing and learning together. We thank you, God, for your word through which you present yourself and show yourself, reveal yourself, that we can come to know you. And God, we pray that this morning, as we look at scripture, that you would help us to know you better. Through Christ we pray. Amen. And if you look at the screen, this is exactly where we were last week. We are looking at the, what we're calling the core, kind of the, the, the central, the most central issues when it comes to our faith. What is it that is right at the heart of things? And we looked last week at, a, at just the notion that although the Trinity, which I'm saying is like priority 1A uh, in terms of theology, is not explicitly spelled out in Scripture. Like it doesn't, you're not going to find a passage that says, and here's the Trinity, let me explain it to you. Paul doesn't ever do anything like that. But although it is not explicitly stated, I think that implicitly it's everywhere. And we looked at a bunch of passages last week that kind of illustrate that point and went through. And what we mainly saw last week were passages that had to do with the gospel and the direct connection of the gospel to Trinitarian thinking. And so if you look at uh, number A there, number two, it says, nonetheless, several statements of the Bible implicitly reflect a Trinitarian notion of God. And there's a whole bunch there, I think, that reflect the notion of Trinity. And we went through most of those. And what I'm going to do for the balance of today is have us just go through and look at a whole bunch of things from Scripture, stuff that I find incredibly exciting as God reveals himself to us specifically through Jesus but then shows himself as being Father, Son, and Spirit, which I think is just so much the, the core and the heart of what it means to be Christian. So I would say that the specific oneness of Jesus, the Word, the Son of God, with God, is not at all obscure. Maybe implicit, but not at all obscure. And let me show you what I mean, especially from the Gospel of John this morning. I want you to turn, if you would, first to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. And then we're going to get into the Gospel of John. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. And you know this passage well. Somebody, when they get there, when you get to Exodus 3, 14, if you want to, if you want to just read that passage... Okay, so that's a well-known story. That's the time when Moses finds the burning bush out in the wilderness, out in the desert. He finds the burning bush, and he goes to the bush, and he start, the bush starts talking to him, and he talks to the bush. And it is clearly God revealing himself in the burning bush to Moses. And as the discussion goes on, at some point, Moses says, who am I going to say has sent me? And God says, you tell them, I am has sent you. I am who I am. Now that phrase, I am has sent you, or I am who I am, comes from 
a Hebrew word, which is a verbal derivative of the name Yahweh. Okay, so you know the name Yahweh. What, what is Yahweh? Somebody tell me. What's Yahweh? What's that? Okay, God's name in the Old Testament. Yeah. Like Jehovah's Witnesses would like to have us say that it's Jehovah. Um, I wrestle with that since the, Jehovah, the word Jehovah is actually a, uh, a made-up word. Uh, when they were doing some translation of the, of the uh, Old Testament into English, they didn't know exactly what to do with Yahweh because it doesn't have any vowels in it in Hebrew. And so they actually made up the word Jehovah. And so it's interesting that Jehovah's Witnesses would say that that's the only name that can be used for praying to God when, when actually that's a, a comprised word. But the word Yahweh is not comprised. Sorry, Steve, did you have a question? I was going to say, I thought, I had read that, uh, like, Jesus, the word Jesus actually should be Yeshua. Yeshua? In Hebrew, yes. Because we didn't have the J in English until sometime after. Well, we had the J in English. But it's just pronounced much differently in Hebrew than it is in English, yeah. Um, But to say that we don't have it is not exactly accurate. The vowels are added, the consonants are not. At any rate, the point is, is that the word Yahweh is in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word typically associated with the name of God. And so if you were looking at your Old, your Old Testament in English, nine times out of ten, your English translation will have the word Yahweh, when it translates into English, it'll have it in all capital letters. So you look at your English Bible... At Exodus 3.14, well, I don't know if Exodus 3.14 is a good example, but lots of places in the Old Testament where it says Yahweh, and it'll say L-O-R-D, but it'll be in capital letters. And when you see it in capital letters in your English Bible, you know that it's the Hebrew word Yahweh that was there in the original. So sometimes you'll see the word Lord, L-O-R-D, in small case, uh, capital L, but then O-R-D in small case, and then sometimes you'll see it in big letters, and when it's all capitals, that means that it was Yahweh. Well, the expression, I am who I am, in Exodus 3.14, is a verbal derivative or a verbally connected word to the word Yahweh. And the word Yahweh and that verbal form of it in Exodus 3.14, when God says, I am who I am, implies being. It implies being. So what, Mo- what Moses is really hearing God say is, I am the one who is. You could say, I am the being one. And what I like to say sometimes, even though it's terrible English is, I am the one who bees. That's really what Exodus 3.14 is saying. It, we try to say this, I am who I am. But what it really says is, I am the one who bees. Now, one of the reasons that we translate it, I am there, instead of something like, I am the being one, is because there is a Septuagint translation of the Old Testament into Greek. What is the Septuagint? I just said it was an Old Testament translation into Greek, but do you remember how this came about? Anybody? Like, why is there such a thing as a Septuagint? Ronnie? Yeah, exactly right. 
what, if you didn't hear all of that, a little time before Jesus comes on the uh, into the world, I don't know, you said 70, I think it might be a predate that a bit, but let's say 200 BC, there were a whole bunch of Jews living down in Alexandria, Egypt. And by this time, most of the world was speaking Greek. And, so, and they weren't very fluent in Hebrew, or Aramaic for that matter, some of them. But they, had to, they wanted to read the scriptures in their own language. And because they wanted to read the scriptures in their own language, they translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. So now there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And you think, well, what's the big deal there? Why is this important? Well, in Exodus 3.14, when they translated that expression, I am who I am, or I am, or I am the being one, or I am the one who bees, when they translated that into Greek, into the Septuagint, in the Old Testament version in, Greek, in the Greek language, they used an expression, ego me." Okay, now I want you to keep that in mind. Ego me." And the reason why that's important is because that gets used so often in the New Testament specifically to describe Jesus. Now just think about that for a moment. In the burning bush, God says, I am. Or he says, ego me. I am who I am. I am, I am. In fact, there's some emphasis there. So it's actually, I am, is what it says. Well, in the Gospel of John especially, there's an effort, I'm absolutely convinced, by the Gospel writer to unite together that I am from Exodus 3.14 with Jesus in the New Testament. Let me show you what I mean. Turn to John 6.35. And twice in John 6, Jesus says this. It's a very short little line. In John 6, 35, it simply says, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Right? Am I right about that? Or are you seeing that? Okay. I am the bread of life. The expression there, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he says, ego me, the bread of life. What he says is, I am. I am the bread of life. The exact same words that come out of Exodus 3.14 when Moses says, whom shall I say they have sent, that has sent me? And God comes out of the bush and says, ego me has sent you, is what you should tell the Egyptians. And that's exactly the line that's used to describe Jesus in, in John 6.35, when he says, I'm the bread of life, he says, ego a me, the bread of life. Same words. Now look at 8.12. John chapter 8, verse 12. And Jesus says, ego a me, the light of the world. Now look at John chapter 10. And look at verse 7. Ego a me, the gate for the sheep. Is that what it says? Okay, the door or the gate. Okay, same thing. Look at verse 11. What does it say? 
I am the good shepherd. Look at verse 14. What does it say? Same thing. Ego me, ego me, ego me. Look at John chapter 11, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says, in the context of raising Jesus, or sorry, raising Lazarus from the dead. I am the resurrection and the life. Ego me, the resurrection and the life, he says. Look at John 14, 6. Thomas says, we don't know the place where you're going. And Jesus says, eventually, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that expression, ego, a me, is used there. Look at John 15. And it's in verse 1 and in verse 5. I am the true vine, Jesus says. And he uses those same words, ego, a me. Now look at John 4, 26. Somebody want to read that for me? Yeah. When he says, I am he, it's, Ego a me. Translated just slightly differently, but the same exact expression in Greek, I am he. Look at John eight thirty two. Oh sorry, fifty eight. John eight fifty eight. And this one is especially poignant. Yeah. And we all recognize that one especially. Like when we read that one, we go, oh, clearly an attempt to get back to Exodus 3.14. But what I'm saying is that all of them point back to Exodus 3.14, and certainly that one does. Who is Jesus when he says, I am? And there's clearly a connection there between himself and Yahweh uh, in John 8.58. And then look at John 18, verses 5 through 6 and verse 8. John chapter 18. Maybe I'll read this one. This is when the people come out, uh, the the soldiers come out to arrest Jesus. Verse 4 says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And when he says, I am he, it's the same exact expression in Greek, ego eimi. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, ego eimi, They drew back and fell to the ground. Why did they fall to the ground? Because he was blaspheming in their opinion. I think there's another reason. Yeah, I think theologically, I think the movement that's being made there, when they fall down, the point is, you don't stand in the presence of God. And that's what's just happened, is that Jesus has just said, I am he. He says, ego me, I am. And so there's this constant, it seems to me, attempt on the part of Jesus 
to claim this for himself in the Gospel of John especially. And so I would say that there's a direct connection between who Jesus is and Yahweh expressed in the Gospel of John with the expression, ego in me, or I am. Yeah, go ahead. In that passage, it was detachment of soldiers and officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. Who do you think fell down? Do you think the soldiers actually fell down too and drew back, or just the, the Jews? Well, I, Otherwise, the soldiers wouldn't have understood yeah. that language. Well, it, it could be that they're totally blown away just by the presence of Jesus. and so, you know, they, they don't know what to do with themselves. But I think at least symbolically... What's happening here is that he says, ego a me. He says, I am, and they all fall down. And I would say that, again, you don't stand in the presence of God. That's what's happening more than anything else, is that claim is being made, and they hit the dirt. Well, that, I think, is a, a compelling kind of argument for where I'm going with making the Trinity here quite central in, in linking together the notion of who God is with, with the Father, with the Son, and the Spirit. But I would say that there's a lot more, of course, in the New Testament, and even in the Gospel of John that points in this direction. So, for example, Jesus is, or may be called, Theos in all kinds of different passages. Now, the word Theos means God. And if Jesus is called God in the New Testament, that's pretty significant. So look at John chapter 1, verse 1. We know this passage quite well, I think. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And there are some questions about that translation in terms of Jesus making that claim, but I'm not convinced that they hold water. I think that the point of Jesus in that passage is to say that he is God. Or John is trying to make that claim about him, I should say. And further proof along those lines comes in John chapter 1. Like, if you look at verse 18, we've talked about this some before, but see what John 1.18 says? No one has ever seen God, but God the only Son, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Your translation is going to say something pretty close to that. There's at least one translation, one version of the NIV that actually says, No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. And you may have an NIV that says exactly that. Does anybody have that, by the way? Heather, you're nodding. Yeah, Ronnie, you have that too. So, yeah, some versions of the NIV will actually say that. God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Well, God, the one and only? That is a very interesting line used to describe Jesus, the Messiah. Now, the, there's a textual variant there, and so there is some controversy about verse 18 and exactly how it should be translated. But, yeah. Okay. What is that? Must be NLT or something. The NIV says that, a later version of the NIV. Okay, okay. They did go back and change that some. And the reason they're doing that is, again, because of the controversy of the textual variant, not knowing exactly how to translate that. But that earlier version that Heather has is very interesting 
in terms of actually saying God the one and only who is at the Father's side. What does your say again? It says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, comma, who is himself God and in, is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. That's very interesting. That borders on more than just translation. <laughs> because there is a bit of an interpretation there. Not, not all those words are in the text exactly like that. I can tell you that for sure. Uh, but what they've done is they've taken the words like what Heather's version of the NIV says and they've made it a bit clearer what they think the sense is even if the words are not translated actually word for word. So that's, it's not quite as wooden a translation or connected directly to the, the words. Uh, it's a bit, of a, a bit of an interpretation. But making the same kind of point. Ronnie? Um, I th- I'm almost certain that it puts the word begotten in there. And it uses the word son. Like if anybody has the new, inter- you said NASB, right? Yeah, the North American Standard Bible. Is that right? Um, I, I'm almost certain that it puts the word begotten in there and it uses the word son as well. And that's one of the questions. Is, is the word son supposed to be in the translation? That's part of the, the, the problem there. At any rate, if it says the way the NIV says it, it's, it's making a very strong claim identifying Jesus with God. Yes, Tony? Well, it's very close to what Heather said. But, like, read yours, Heather. Oh, okay. Well, like, like if you had a, if you have an earlier version. Well, this is the yeah, this is the NASB. It's it, here. I, I'll say this: it's difficult to to just for me to answer it simply because there is a textual variant there, and the word "son" is not depending on some people's opinion, supposed to be in the text. Okay? Like, like, in fact, you'll look at a footnote. Almost all your versions will have a footnote. Look at your footnote, and the footnote will say something about the word son either is or is not in the text. Okay? Ronnie? Okay, what it says. It says, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only. Who is at the Father's side? Yeah, okay, that's the earlier version of the NIV. So read that for Tony so that Tony can hear it. Because this comes as close to the translation or the Greek as anything I know. Go ahead and read this. Yeah, verse 18 it says, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And then the footnote here says, uh, 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 Some, Some manuscripts... Yeah, sometimes begotten. And in fact, sometimes son as well. Those words may or may not be in the text. Okay? But the way that he translated I think is a very good translation, or the way that that translates I think is a very good translation of what's actually in the Greek. And again, the whole point is there's an identification here between who Jesus is and who God is, and I think that that passage shows it extremely well. Look at chapter 20, verse 28. You're just making it clearer, I guess. Somebody want to read that for us? Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Yeah. Thomas says about Jesus in John 20, 28, my Lord and my God. Now, the word Lord there is the word kurios. Countless times in the New Testament, the word kurios is actually used directly connected to the Hebrew word Yahweh. And so if you were translating the Septuagint, Old Testament into Greek, 
and you were going to translate Yahweh, the vast majority of times, Yahweh gets translated as Kyrios. So if that's the case, then when Jesus says, or when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, Thomas is a Jew. Thomas knows the Septuagint because that would have been the Bible of the day that he was reading. So when he says, my Lord and my God, when he says, my Kyrios and my Theos, he is making a very strong, definitive claim about who Jesus is in his eyes. And in fact, that he uses the word Kyrios is going to link directly Jesus to who Yahweh is in Thomas's eyes. So it's, I think it's very difficult to get out of the idea that the New Testament, at least certainly the Gospel of John, which last time I checked was authoritative and inspired, makes a strong claim for the connection between who Jesus is and Yahweh. Okay? Now, there are a bunch of other passages that we could go through. You can see that on your sheet. Other passages that make a connection between who Jesus is and the word theos specifically, saying Jesus is God. The problem is, every one of those passages has some kind of textual problem with them, just coincidentally. It's interesting. And so if you were to go through those, you would find footnotes in your Bible in a lot of those places saying, or this could be translated this way, or something like that. We won't go through all of those. But but we've seen some strong passages, I think, that indicate who Jesus is in relationship to God. Now, in addition to that, if that's not enough for you, Old Testament prophecies call Jesus Yahweh. And so we can look at these. Somebody want to turn to uh, Isaiah 40, verse 3 for us? And do I have all these scriptures listed on your outline, by the way? Yeah, okay. So Isaiah 40 is there, and then Joel 2.32. Somebody want to turn to Joel 2.32 for me? And, and sorry, okay, thank you, Walter. Joel 2.32. And then uh, I, I already said Isaiah 40, verse 3. Who's got that? Oh, you got that one. Isaiah 40, verse 3. Okay, we'll be there in a second. Perfect. Joel 2.32. Who's got that then? Okay, thanks, Steve. Somebody want to read uh, Psalm 102 for us? Greg, thank you. Uh, it's a little confusing, Deuteronomy 32. Why don't we go down to Isaiah 45? Somebody want to read that? Ron? And then Heather, you want to read uh, Psalm 45? Okay. Let's just read those in order. Isaiah 40, verse 3. Walter, you want to read that for us? The voice of one called in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Okay. Now that clearly, in context, is talking about Jesus, and John the Baptist is preaching and talking about Jesus is going to come. And you'll see that in those quotations uh, that are mentioned there out to the right after that, that reference to Isaiah chapter 40. So John the Baptist says about Jesus, make straight the way of the Lord. The, the prophecy says John the Baptist is coming in order to make straight the way of the Lord. Well, in the original, in the Old Testament, the word for Lord there is Yahweh. Okay, Or if it was the Septuagint, the Greek translation, it would say Kyrios. And then when you, get, when you read that in Matthew, then it does say Kyrios. Okay? So what I'm saying is, is that it's making a claim about Jesus, 
But in the Old Testament, it's making the same claim about Yahweh and using the word Yahweh in the Old Testament that's then quoted in the New Testament specifically for Jesus. 2.32, somebody want to read that? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors, the Lord calls. Okay, so again, when you read that, does it have the word Lord in all capitals? Yeah, because it's Yahweh. And clearly a reference to Jesus, and you can see that quoted in various places in the New Testament, and I've given you some of those. Question. Yeah. I was going to ask that earlier. In the New Testament, when they write Lord, they don't capitalize it often. Even the, some of the scriptures you just had us read that said Lord. Because it doesn't say Yahweh. Well, you, it says Kyrios. No, but the, okay. All right. So when, when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, that was small case. Yes, because it's Kyrios, Kai, Theos, saying Lord and God. Okay, so in the New Testament, it's Kyrios, and so it's not all capitalized because it's not Yahweh. But if it was, if we were, again, reading in the Old Testament original, like we are in Isaiah 40 and Joel 2, then it's going to be all caps because it's Yahweh. Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. In the beginning, you made the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all grow up like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be discarded. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. That doesn't say what I thought it would say. That was, that was Psalm 102, 25 through 27? Okay, maybe I just missed it. Anyway, I can tell you that if you look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10, uh, it's going to be a quotation of Psalm, two, Psalm 102. And again, the word law, uh, in, the, in the original it's going to be Yahweh, and in the New Testament it's going to be Kyrios. Look at Isaiah 45. Somebody want to read that? Uh, I'll, I'll read verse 24 as well because that's where the Lord shows. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I, in my notes here, I may have uh, not included all the verses. By myself I have sworn, my mouth is uttered in all integrity, a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. Okay. Where do you hear the language, every knee will bow and every tongue confess? In the New Testament, yeah. Philippians chapter 2, okay? That's the Christ hymn. Paul talks in Philippians chapter 2 and says, everyone should have the same mind as that was in Christ Jesus, da-da-da-da-da. And at the name of Christ, after he has not counted equality with God, something to be grasped, then... Uh, in about verse 11 or so, and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. A direct allusion, obviously, to Isaiah 45, where it's Yahweh who is that, uh, of whom that's being said. And then Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. I love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by Okay, and that's, a, that's quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, specifically of Jesus, making the point that he is the final revelation of God. So again, my point is, is that there's all these times in the Old Testament where the word Yahweh is being used in some prophecy, which is fulfilled by Jesus, and it specifically quotes the prophecy in the New Testament, saying Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. But in the Old Testament, it's Yahweh. In the New Testament, it might be Kyrios, 
but clearly making the claim about Jesus that he is Yahweh. And here's part of my argument. If you were Jewish, you would not begin to do this. Like there is no way, if you're a Jew, that you would ever, ever think of identifying a human being as the fulfillment of some prophecy that is talking about Yahweh. You couldn't ever do that. Unless what? Unless it's true. Unless that identification is there. It would be absolutely blasphemous for Jesus to say to, about himself, I am a fulfillment of this prophecy. Or for, for John the Baptist to say about Jesus, he's a fulfillment of this prophecy. Or for the Hebrew writer to say, he's a fulfillment of this prophecy. Or for Thomas to say, my Lord and my God, absolutely blasphemous to use that language about Jesus. Unless, of course, it's true. Ronnie? No, 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 he doesn't. And in fact, it's a perfect opportunity for Jesus to set this straight. Because there's no way that Jesus could possibly allow himself to be so straightforwardly called Kyrios Kai Theos. Like if I looked at one of you, if I looked at you, Comfort, and I said, huh, my Lord and my God, you would go, whoa, don't say that. Because it would be absolutely blasphemous to say that. But that is exactly what Thomas says. And Jesus doesn't correct him. And it was only after Christ's resurrection and walking through the walls that Thomas said that. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah, he appears in the upper room. Yeah. Just a question. When the Jews were waiting for the Messiah, it, it, I get the impression that they never imagined that it would be God himself. Yeah, that's a great point, Steve. I, and I would agree. I don't think the Jews had in their minds this notion that when Messiah comes, that it's going to be an incarnation of God. Yeah, I would agree. They were expecting an earthly ruler. You know, they were expecting a king on the throne of David, like Second Samuel 7, <clears throat> and, and a number of passages talk about. So it, it, all of that I find uh, kind of fascinating. Well, not fascinating. I find it amazingly humbling and informative to think that this is who our Lord is, our curios. But indeed, that's who he is. Well, there's lots that we could say here. We could say that Jesus is worshipped. You'll find, like you've got the evidence before you there on the sheet, so I won't go through all of that. But Jesus is worshipped. Um, and of course, God is worshipped. And of course, no one is to be worshipped, especially in the Old Testament. No one is to be worshipped except who? God and God alone. That's the first and second commandment. We don't do this. But Jesus is then worshipped. How could a Jew possibly worship Jesus? Uh, it would be blasphemous to do so. The titles of God are oftentimes used of Jesus. And again, I, I won't go through all of this. There's lots of things there. Um, one, there's one throne with one light uh, in the book of Revelation. Jesus is curious. I've mentioned this already. Many, 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 many times in the Septuagint, the word kurios translates Yahweh, and then that's the word that's used for Jesus in the New Testament again and again. Jesus is God's son, special relationship, of course. Kelly, so just yeah. you're thinking about the Jews of the time, Pharisees, etc. They had two things to overcome. One, they had to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Yeah. And second, yeah. believe that he was God. Yeah, even the apostles had a hard time with this one. 
I mean, that's why Thomas is so uh, incredulous in the beginning. But then when he finally, when he sees that Jesus is risen from the dead, wow, my Lord and my God, I would agree. Jesus does claim to be God. Uh, Jesus claims uh, an audacious oneness with the Father. The Father and I are one. Who could say this? Who could ever say, my Father and I are one? No one could say that, unless, of course, it was true. He sits at God's right hand, has all power in heaven and earth. He receives prayers. He is honored just as the Father is honored. Chris, could you look at the screen? Are there any points below that? Yeah, thank you. So if you... I think that the, the argument is cumulative, weighty. I, I don't want to say irrefutable, because people do attempt to refute it. But my goodness, that just seems to me like this is so strong as to be incontrovertible. And again, I think we have to take this very seriously if we're going to have our theological foundations right. To start with the question, who is God? Makes total sense to me as the, place, at the, as the right starting place. And then as we see him being revealed to us as this Trinitarian one, and especially the relationship between the Son and the Father, uh, this, for me, becomes a, a firm foundation from which to start in terms of what we're going to be as Christians, what we're going to think. And so if you flip to the, I don't know if... Uh, if all, how much of this is in your outline. I've got one that's just slightly different. Uh, but if you fil- flip to the end, there's a statement uh, that I have in my notes, and I don't know if it's in yours or not, but I'll read this statement. Reflecting on the significance of the Trinitarian character of God shows itself to be anything but an impractical exercise in esoteric academic theology. And that's what we're going to talk about next time a bit, is just how practical this actually is. It's amazingly practical. People think that the Trinity is just off in the clouds. It's a mystery. We can't sort all this out. It doesn't have any impact on the church. And I would say that it has a huge impact on the church to talk about Trinity. But first, we have to believe it. And I think it's worthy of being believed. Okay. Thank you.